to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and this is where we'll spend our time this morning. I was thinking on the the drive-in this morning um, how significant of a thing it is um, that Christians gather weekly. You think about the, the thousands or millions of churches and the millions and millions of Christians um, who are doing the very same thing you're doing. Maybe it was last night because of the time zone they're in, or maybe it's tomorrow because of the time zone they're in. But people all around the world have gathered to do the very thing that we're doing today, uh, to sing praises to God, to sing praises to Christ, and to study His Word together. And uh, as, as much as culture has shifted and changed over time, um, this is one thing that has remained the same, and it's a gift that God has given us, and I pray that we would understand it as such, uh, even this morning as we've gathered together. Mark chapter 12, again, we'll look at verses 1 through 12 today, and uh, as, as we read through this, as, or as we have read through this, and as we study through this together, uh, it is my prayer as always that God would, would use it to speak to our hearts, and the passage um, that we're looking at today is, is an interesting one. It's it's a, a parable that Christ gives, um, but it's not a parable that is, is strictly His parable. It's a parable that's referenced in the Old Testament, and Christ quotes the Old Testament uh, a couple of times in this parable. He alludes to the Old Testament a couple of times in this parable. And so as I was reading through it, um, the, the thought that came to my mind, and you can see it as the sermon um, title, is simply Connect the Dots. When I was a kid, I loved the activity books that had a connect the dots portion. I wasn't that artistic, so if somebody could just label for me, you know, what dot to go to, then I could come up with a pretty cool picture, right? If I'm left to my own, um, it was one of those times where my mom would say, oh, thank you for the picture. And she had no idea in her, in her mind what it was that I drew for her. And quite frankly, I had no idea what I drew for her. Uh, but when you get to connect the dots, it makes it a little simpler. You can go from dot one to dot 27 and connect the dots uh, everywhere in between. And when you're done, you end up with a masterpiece of a picture. Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's a picture nonetheless. I think we play this connect the dots game in our minds more than we even recognize. We're in a situation in life, we're facing something in life, and we begin to think through it logically, and we go from point A to point Z, all the while connecting the dots, making sense of what is going on in our lives, trying to draw a a logical or a clear or an understood conclusion as to how we got from point A to point B. And as I was thinking through this passage, and, and then as I was thinking through Scripture as a whole, in reality, all of Scripture is just a giant connect the dots. It's God saying from point A to point Z, this is the story that I have written. And there is one main character, and that character is Jesus Christ. There's a lot of supporting characters. There's a lot of stories that are surrounding the main story. But as you go from Genesis to Revelation, what do we understand? That it's all about Christ. That it all points to Him. It all points to salvation through His name. And so as Christ takes us on this journey into the Old Testament, into the temple, and then pointing to the future, really what He's doing is connecting the dots for those who were there on that day but also for those of us who are here on this day, that we would look at the scripture and that we would see the fullness, not just of what's being said 
in Mark chapter 12, but we would understand the fullness of what has been said in the Old Testament all the way to the end of the New Testament. And when you connect the dots appropriately, it always brings clarity. When you connect the dots in a logical way, in the way that they were meant to be connected, in a systematic way, then when you're done connecting the dots and you step back, what do you say? It all makes sense now. And friend, my heart this morning is that that is what we would do with the scriptures. That we would not look at them with our own agenda or a a perspective that we're trying to make something of it that's not there, but that we would just simply look at the scriptures that God has given us and that we would see how it's all in some way, in one form or another, pointing to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we would step back and with great clarity in our hearts, continue to rest in God's perfect plan. We sang that song this morning, Whate'er my God ordains is right. I heard of a situation this week, and I said to myself, this is not right. This is not good. This isn't how it's supposed to be. But when I step back, and I understand that my God is always working his plan to come to be, even though I don't understand what he's doing, I can say, whatever my God ordains is right. And as I connect the dots of Scripture to see that that this life, though we don't like this thought, this life is not ultimately about me, this life is ultimately about him, then the things that he brings into my life, the things that he allows in my life are to be used for his honor and his glory as he draws me closer to himself. And so I pray this morning that we would connect the dots. Jesus, in, in many places through the Gospels, we see that he alludes to other places of Scripture. He alludes to things that had happened in the Old Testament or prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. And he does that to help his listeners in that day understand that it's all a connected story, that, that though the religious leaders are saying, this is the way we should go, Christ in reality is saying, no, this is the path that the Father wants us on. This is the plan that he would have us to walk in. And so he's seeking to bring comfort in places that there was confusion. He's seeking, seeking to bring clarity into places where, where there had been corruptness. And we see that uh, in the temple, don't we? That as Christ came in a few weeks ago, he cleansed the temple. Why? Because the religious leaders of the day had taken what God had given and they had begun to misuse it ultimately for their benefit and for their gain. They enjoyed the position of power that they held. They enjoyed the the opportunities that their position had afforded them. They enjoyed the power and control over the people that their position had afforded them. And when Christ came in and began to turn things on their head, again, the religious crowd said this, we've got to get rid of this guy because he's messing everything up. When in reality, it wasn't Christ who was messing things up. Christ was coming to set things straight. He was coming to make clear that which, would, which had been made confusing by the religious leaders of the day. So as I said earlier, this is the second confrontation of five that Christ has with the religious crowd in the time that he is in the temple. We could look at that and say, well, it probably spans six months. That's not that bad. No, in reality, it spans a day or two at most. So these religious leaders, they, they were amping up in their desire to get rid of Christ. And Christ was amping up and buckling down to show you will not get rid of me 
until it's God's appointed time. They wanted to kill him. They sought to lay hands on him in this passage. And yet Christ, as he quotes the Old Testament in verse number 11, as he speaks of himself being the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that was rejected of men, he says this in verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you see what Christ had confidence in the whole time he was on this earth? It was the plan of the Father. It was that God's plan would come to be. It was that God's will would be done. And Christ, though he understood the outcome that was waiting in, in meaning that he would go to the cross to die, what does he say as he quotes the Old Testament? Yes, I am the cornerstone that was rejected, but all of this is a part of God's plan. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And friends, this is, this is not even the heart of where the message is going. But it's something that God has just laid on my heart in the moment. And it's simply this. Will you look at your lives in the way that God is leading and directing, in the ways that he's working? And will you have faith enough to say that this is the Lord's doing? And it's marvelous in her eyes. It doesn't feel marvelous. It doesn't feel like this is how it should be going or what should be happening. But when you have confidence in a sovereign God who reigns over everything, we can say it with great joy in our hearts that this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The big idea this morning is this. In, the pa- in this passage, Christ connects some important dots to help us understand who he is and what he was doing. The religious crowd ignored the words of Christ and it led to their destruction. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I want to see three things today from this text that hopefully will be a help to us as we look how Christ connects the dots for these people who are in his presence on this day. The first thing we see is that Christ spoke purposefully. If you remember the the scene before us, Christ is in the temple. We saw last week that he was walking with his followers and he was teaching them with great authority. He was using the temple as an illustration probably for his own life and the things that he would accomplish and the things that he would do. And in that moment, the religious crowd, the Sanhedrin came to him and they began to question him and say, how are you doing these things? And Christ said, well, if, if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. And, and without saying he had authority, he proved once again that he had authority because these men would not and could not answer his question without condemning themselves. And so they walked away. Well, as we pick up the story in chapter 12, Seemingly, it's the same day. And as as this is taking place, the Bible says that Christ began to speak to them, those who were in his presence, who were following, but also the religious crowd who wanted to get rid of him. And the Bible says this in verse number one, and he began to speak unto them by parables. Now we understand, I think most of us do what a parable is. It's a story that God is using to relay a spiritual truth or an eternal truth or a heavenly truth. Christ is using common things to help those around him understand who he was and what he came to do. 
And as Christ was speaking at this moment, just like every other time we've seen him speak in the Gospel of Mark, what he says is very purposeful and it's very intentional. We heard often in Bible college that you have to know your crowd, right? If you're going to speak to a group of people, you have to know who it is you're speaking to. And that's, I think, what I enjoy most about preaching to our church week in and week out is that I'm familiar with you. I got to speak Friday at the pastor's fellowship and uh, I enjoy speaking most of the time at those things, but I prefer to speak here. Why? Because we're a family. We, we know each other. I understand what you're going through, the things you're facing. You understand my heart for you, that I love you. Hopefully you understand that. And as Christ was speaking here, he spoke very purposefully. And as he spoke purposefully, it was because he understood his crowd. We have to think of the groups that were there on that day. There were those who had tied themselves to Christ. They were seeking to learn. They were seeking to understand. Oh, they saw Christ overthrow the, the religious hypocrites who were selling the animals and, and making an exorbitant amount of profit off of what God had set up as worship. They, they were there on that day. These people saw that. The next day, Christ came back in and they said, hey, we want to hear what this guy has to say. We're interested in this. And so Christ knew that those people were there seriously seeking who he was. The disciples were there, his 12 chosen men. So he was speaking to them, but he was also speaking to the Sanhedrin. He was speaking to these men who were angry. He was speaking to these men who were bitter, who were fearful. They were posing to be strong men, but in reality, they were simply weak men who bolstered themselves up by speaking powerful things and hiding behind the privileges that they had. When you saw them in public, you likely would have wanted to avoid these men because they were so pious. They were so arrogant. They were so filled with, with, with a disdain for common people. And they looked at Christ as simply a common man. They were imposters, but they looked at Christ as the imposter. They were seemingly setting the, the spiritual standard and yet Christ was saying to them, you're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And so Christ is purposeful in the way that he speaks here. He speaks unto them a parable. Now, if we were to go to Matthew's gospel, we'll see that Christ in reality spoke three parables on this day. At this point in time, when Christ gives this one parable, there are actually two others that surround it. And we won't get into those things, but each of them has to do with the idea of judgment and law. Each of those parables that are given in Matthew's gospel and this one in Mark's gospel are given to show that hypocrisy in religion never ends well. That you can make it look good for the people around you, but in the end of, at the end of the day, judgment is coming. And why would Christ speak that way? Well, in part, he spoke that way because he wanted the religious crowd to know that he was on to them. That they, though they may have been fooling others, they were not fooling him. He spoke this way in part because he wanted his followers to understand that, hey, guess what? Judgment is coming, so make sure you live in a way that brings glory to the Lord. He spoke in this way because he wanted to call all men to repentance to say this, that it's not just about the show you put on, but it's about the position of your heart before a holy and just and righteous God. He spoke purposefully because he cared for the people. He cared even for his enemies. 
or else he would have just simply dismissed them. And as we think of Christ speaking purposefully, we must understand that in every, every place he speaks, he never speaks to mislead. That's what the religious crowd did. He never speaks lies. He never speaks to deceive, but his words are always truth. If you want to go on an interesting study, make your way through the Gospels and just simply read the words of Christ that are in red. And then ask yourself, where does my life line up and where does it not line up with the words that my Savior spoke? Because in all of these areas that he spoke, he always spoke to draw men to the truth, for he was the truth. And so the first thing we see is that Christ spoke purposefully. He's spoken to them by a parable. The second thing we see this morning is that Christ spoke historically and prophetically. In verses 1 through 11, that's the, the sum total of the parable that Christ gives. In the second part of verse 1, he begins by saying, A certain man planted a vineyard. And when these men heard this, they would have understood what Christ was doing. He was telling them a story. And who here today would say, you love a good story? I, I love listening to, to uh Podcasts where, where they, they illustrate what they're trying to get across through a story. Maybe it's a real story. Maybe it's a fake story. Uh, I love listening to people share their life stories. It can be true or it can be not true. I'm a sucker for a story. And as Christ began to speak on this day, he began to tell them this story. But it wasn't just story time with Jesus. It was time for them to understand that that he knew exactly what was going on and they needed to know exactly what was going on. Because their minds were in two different places, weren't they? The religious crowd was saying, this is our game, this is our time to shine. We are the ones with power and authority. We are the ones who need to overthrow this man who has come in and disrupted everything that we have established for ourselves. And at the very same time, Christ was saying, no, I have authority. I have power. And so as he begins to tell this story, he's drawing his listeners in, both the religious crowd and the true and faithful followers to help them understand exactly what is going on in this place. And the parable is simple. He says, a certain man planted a vineyard and set up a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a country. Jesus is just basically telling a story of a land developer who held on to the rights of the land. He came in and he bought this piece of land and he saw that it was going to be profitable. And so he makes the investment, understanding that there would not be a return on his investment for many years. But by the time the, this land began to produce grapes that they could actually crush them to make wine, it probably would have been about four to five years in time. So this man comes in, he sees that the, the, the land is promising, he buys the land, he does the work, and then he leases it out to these husbandmen who would come in, and they would work the soil, they would grow the crops, they would produce the, 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 the final product, and then the husbandmen, or the, the owner, I'm sorry, would come back in and say, for the, the price you owe me, I'll just take a portion of the crop that you have produced. So the Bible says in verse number two, and at that season, at the season, which would have been the time of harvest, he, the owner of the land, sent to the husbandmen, the leasers of the land, a servant that he might receive 
from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And so this plan is working out perfectly. They'd signed a contract. They said, this is, this is the terms. This is the agreement. When the land begins to produce fruit, I'm going to send back my servants. They're going to collect what you owe me. They're going to go on their way. And this will be a year after year process until the lease runs up. Simple to understand. Jesus was telling a simple story. But Jesus takes a twist within the story. In verse number three, it says that the husbandmen, or those who had been leasing the land, they caught the servant, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty. Now, why would they do this? Well, it's because of pride, right? Jesus is illustrating what has taken place in Jerusalem, in, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish religion, in the faith that God had given to them, pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus is illustrating that there was an error made along the way, and this was the error. God had established things. God had set things up. God had given these men power and authority to operate in a way that would bring glory to his name. And when they began to go off course, God would send his prophets. And what would they do? They would try to bring correction, or they would try to encourage the people. And that's what's taking place here. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, did they love the prophets? No. Not in their seasons of sinfulness. Not when their hearts were not in the right place. And the things that they did to the prophets, Jesus illustrates here. The first one being that they would beat them. If you want another interesting study, spend some time reading through the books of prophecy in the Old Testament, the books of the prophets, and understand how poorly those men were treated. It would have been a scary thing for God to say, I want you to be my prophet. Why? Because they understood the reality. As it talks about in Hebrews chapter 11, men being sawn in half, many believe that was Isaiah that they were talking about, and he was sawn in half, not with a regular saw, but with a wooden saw. Can you imagine the pain that that would have inflicted upon his body? And who was he? He was a prophet. So the man who owns the land sends the first servant. They catch him, they beat him, and they send him away, send him away empty. In verse number four, again, he sent it to them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. Verse number five, and again he sent another unto him and they killed him and many others beating some and killing some. So this picture that Jesus is painting is not good. There, these, the story that Jesus is telling is kind of a gross story that, that all these men were so mishandled uh, improperly that they were abused, that they were beaten, that they were even killed. And as, as Jesus reaches the climax of the story, he doesn't end with the servant saying that many have come and they have done these things to many. But then the Bible says in verse Number six, having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, they will receive my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come and let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. So Jesus is speaking historically, right? He's talking about the prophets all the way up to John the Baptist who was beheaded for the things that he spoke against this, this nation that God loved, this nation that God had chosen. And then 
the, the story turns and says the guy who owns the land says, I'm going to send my son because they'd never torture my son. They'd never kill my son. And if you notice, as Jesus describes it, it was his one son and his well-beloved son. And as the servants in the previous verses represent the prophets whom God had sent before to prepare the people for the Lord, verse number seven, as it speaks of the son, we understand that the story turns and it's now speaking of Christ himself. These men who were listening on this day, though some were likely confused, I'm sure some had their blood begin to boil because they understood what Jesus was saying. They recognized that, that what had taken place in history wasn't probably right, that, that Israel had mistreated the prophets, that they had killed the prophets, that they had stoned the prophets leading up to John the Baptist where he himself was even mistreated. And then they understand that Christ had already claimed to be what? The very Son of God whom John the Baptist was pointing to, whom all the prophets were pointing to. And they were recognizing in this moment that Jesus was claiming to be deity. And though they didn't believe it, they still let it get under their skin to the point where they were angered beyond comparison. They were, they were upset that Jesus was making this claim, but the claim that Jesus was making is perfectly describing what was going on there. They saw Christ come and they saw the claims that Christ had made. And from the very beginning, what did they say? We've got to destroy this man. We've got to get rid of this man. We need to do away with this man because he's taking away from us what is rightfully ours. And that's what the, the, the ones who were leasing the land said in the parable that was given. We want it all for ourselves. We want everything for us. We don't want to give glory to where glory is due. We don't want to give any payback to the one who deserves everything, for he is the one who established everything. And so as Christ turns the, the corner in the story and goes from speaking about the servants to the son, we see that, that the, the men who were there on this day, those religious leaders, began to understand what was being said, and they didn't like it. In verse number 8, as Jesus continues the story, he says, And they took him, speaking of the son in the parable, and they killed him, and they cast him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus asks the question, he says, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? And maybe he gives a, a, a pause in that moment for these men to really assess the situation. Maybe they're thinking, hey, if that was my land and those were my servants, I know exactly what I would do. And probably all of us would think in the very same way. And Jesus then answers his own question. And he says, and he will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And as Christ begins to describe what has happened in Israel's past, and what is happening in Israel's present, he's ultimately unveiling the fullness of the plan of God, that, that the, the promise of the gift of eternal life through the Messiah would not just stay within the bounds or the confines of Israel, but it would open up to all the world so that all men can be saved. And what a beautiful story this is. And it's a story that we should be thankful for. For those others 
that the vineyard was given to, friends, is us. That because of the mistreatment of the prophets and the rejection of the Messiah by the people that God had chosen for himself, because of their disdain for the Messiah when he came on the scene, God in his foreknowledge and his understanding of all that would ever take place surrounding this idea of salvation is saying, and I will open up salvation to the Lord. And he goes on in verse number 10 as he quotes the Old Testament and he says this, and have you not read the scripture that the stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner? Jesus says the very one that you have despised and the very one that you have overlooked and the very one that you have tried to do away with, understand, he is the puzzle piece that makes everything else make sense. And friend, if you try to connect the dots of the scriptures while skipping over Christ, do you know what you'll have? You'll have a list of rules and regulations where you are trying to earn your way to God. But you allow all the dots to point to Christ. You understand the beauty and the grace and the mercy that God the Father has had towards his most precious creation, which is humanity. And then he goes on to say, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And friend, the story of salvation is marvelous. And nothing within the scriptures was left to chance, nothing within the redemptive story was left to chance. Nothing within the, the, the idea of God sending salvation to this world through His Son was left to chance, but it was all according to the Lord's plan. It was all according to the Lord's doing. And Christ, He's speaking historically as He speaks of the prophets, and He's speaking prophetically as He speaks to Himself that yes, He would be delivered up, and He would be condemned to death, and He would be crucified on a cross, But praise God, he would rise again. And because of God's beautiful plan for salvation, we can step back as those who live in 2024 and say it's it's a marvelous thing in our eyes. It's a marvelous thing that God would love us enough that he would allow his son to be given up to evil men so that we could be forgiven. But it was all a part of his plan. The passage that Christ is alluding to as he gives this parable, and you can turn there on your own time and read it for time's sake, is Isaiah chapter 5. Actually, let's just read it now. It says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it. Does it sound familiar to what Christ had said in Mark chapter 12? And also, he made a wine press there, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. That word wild grapes, or that idea of wild grapes in the original is sour grapes. They were grapes that in reality were good for nothing. They were grapes that could not be pressed to make wine. And so even in the Old Testament, what is God saying? God has done a marvelous thing in choosing a people for himself that he would make himself known to the world through. And the fruit that that was produced through them because of the hardness of their hearts was sour grapes that were worthless. He goes on to say in verse number three, and, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, 
What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I look that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned, nor dig. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will command the clouds that they rain, no more rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, for behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. So as Christ gives this parable in Mark chapter 12, these men who knew the scriptures understood that he was alluding to the parable that was given in Isaiah chapter 5. And as he quotes the, the, psalm, uh, the, the verses from Psalm 118, it's, it's no small thing that the words that the people chanted as Christ came into Jerusalem were also from that very same psalm, Psalm 118, save now. And Christ in this, in this moment is saying, that everything that has been happening in the Old Testament, the cornerstone that was rejected, the Messiah that the people rejected, Christ is saying, that's me. And as he spoke historically, and as he spoke prophetically, we understood that he spoke, or we understand that he spoke accurately, making everything point to where it should point. And who is that to? Jesus. These men did not like that. These men were ticked off. These men were angry. These men were were driven inside of themselves to come up with plans of how they could destroy them. And as I said a moment ago, we know that, that they would seem to gain the victory, but through their victory, ultimately, what did they bring upon themselves? Great defeat. That the ones who had rejected the Messiah though they set themselves up to be praised by men, were ultimately set down and cast down by God the Father. Why? Because of their rejection of the Messiah. And as Christ gives this illustration in this parable about how the father or the landowner would give that vineyard to another, as he exacts judgment upon these men who treated his servants and his son so maliciously and evilly, We understand that Christ was speaking to those men on that day. And they understood why. Because they were connecting the dots. And though they didn't want to admit what Christ was saying was true and right and accurate, in their heart of hearts, they understood that they had erred. But their stubbornness would not allow them to admit that. And isn't that what we saw last time? As they came to Christ and they said, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? And Christ said, well, you answer my question first. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? And they knew in that moment that if they said heaven, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe me? Then why didn't you believe it? If they said men, the people would stone him. So these cowardly men backed down in that moment. And that's when Christ gives this illustration. And that leads us to our third point. And that is simply this, that Christ spoke universally. In verse number 12, the Bible says, and they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that, they had, that he had spoken the parable 
against them, and they left him and went their way. You ever been in a situation and somebody's sharing something and you're like, I don't know if you're talking about me or if you're talking about somebody else, it's kind of awkward. Understand, there was no awkwardness here. They knew. They knew that everything that had just been spoken was about them, that they had rejected the prophets, that they had rejected the son, that they had misused what God had given them for their own purposes, for their own glory, for their own uh, agenda. And, and as Christ spoke these words to them, as he quoted Isaiah 5, as he quoted Psalm 118, they, they were thinking in their minds, man, he's hit the nail on the head, but we can't let him know that. And they were so fiercely angered in verse 12 that it says that they sought to lay hold on him. That doesn't mean that they, they wanted to come up and give him a hug and say, oh Jesus, thank you for pointing out the error of our ways. That sought to lay hold on him, it ties into every other time that a phrase like this is said in the Gospels, that they wanted to arrest him. Now the interesting thing about the Sanhedrin is that they didn't have power to arrest. They had to go and convince somebody else to do what they wanted them to do, and they would. They would go from this point on, and they would convince people to arrest Jesus, and they would hold a mock trial, and they would condemn him to death, and he would die on the cross, and they would ultimately do what they wanted to do in getting rid of Jesus. But Jesus would have said to them, as he did say to them, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He would point them back to the reality that they had no power outside of the, the power of God and what God had given them. And so as Christ spoke historically and prophetically, he then speaks universally. And this really shouldn't just be verse number 12, but it should be all of the parable that Christ has given, including the first part of verse number one. For as Christ spoke then, friend, we must understand that Christ is still, still speaking today. And as he looked at these men and said, you have rejected the prophets and you have rejected the son and you have misused what God has given you that was pointing to me in the end, you've used it for yourself, that you have abandoned God's perfect plan to try to do your own thing. And because of it, you have brought judgment to yourself. And as Christ was speaking to these men on this day, church, understand, he is still speaking that message today. That when we reject the word of God and the revelation of God through his son, Jesus Christ, we are bringing to ourselves damnation. That when we mishandle what God has given us in the gospel, then we are setting ourselves up for judgment. When we misuse God's blessing in our lives for our own prospering, then in a sense we have set ourselves up against God. And I don't think anybody here, including myself, would ever say that I want, my, I want to set myself against God. And yet how many times have we done that? And so Christ speaks universally. He's speaking to the, those who were listening with seeking hearts on this day, drawing them in to understand that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that He is the Son who was sent by the Father to redeem all of mankind as they would place their faith and trust in Him. He's speaking universally, calling men to believe that truth, and at the very same time, He's speaking universally to all men who would reject that truth. So we have to ask ourselves today, how do we understand the words of Christ? 
we know there's many who would want to say that as Christ speaks universally, it's because he has given a universal salvation that all men will be saved. Friend, we know that's not the truth. Let's be honest, it makes, makes our flesh feel better, doesn't it? That all men will be saved. Everyone's going to heaven when they die. But is that speaking honestly? No. And so as Christ lays out the reality of what was going on and what would go on, it's important that we understand these things as well. Christ gives an offer in this parable, though it's, it's not an invitation to come to an altar. He gives an offer in this parable to believe the truth about who he is, that he is the chief stone, the cornerstone that had been rejected, that he is the one who was sent from God, whom mankind despised, but he is the son who will bring salvation to all who believe. And I would ask you this morning, do you believe? Do you believe in this Jesus? Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, and all that the Father giveth shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And you may sit here today and you say, as I think through my past, I could label myself as one of those who mishandled the opportunities that God gave, that I rejected the revelation of Christ in my life because I wanted to do my own thing. But friend, guess what? If you're still breathing, then there's still time. And Jesus says, if you come to him, he will not cast you out. He's speaking universally to you today. The salvation call goes to all men. And I would ask you today, do you believe? Matthew 11, you've heard me Quote this passage many times. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friend, if you're struggling today, trying to find rest in your soul, understand that it only comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And in saying, I'll do it my own way, though you're not speaking angry words against Christ, You are speaking words against Christ because you're saying, I can figure it out without you. Friend, no man can figure out salvation through their own power. So will you come to him? As Jesus speaks these hard words, no doubt it caused a division in the crowd. There were some who were eagerly listening on that day as Christ spoke these things. And they said, yes, he is the one. And their love for him grew and their hearts for him began to flourish as they understood in a fuller way the Savior that had come to redeem mankind. But let's also understand the flip side of the coin that there were some on that day that the words that Christ spoke caused them to be filled with anger. And from that point on, more than ever before, They sought to get rid of this man who claimed to be the way of salvation. And so as Christ spoke universally, friends, I would ask you today, how do you receive the words of Christ? How do you receive the words of Christ? Are you living in faithfulness because you understand that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? You see, Jesus is not just simply something that we tack onto our lives to improve one area. Jesus came to give us new life. 
to give us abundant life, both here and in eternity. And so Jesus is not just a portion of what we do. Jesus is our everything. Is that who Jesus is to you? Because that's the call that Jesus is making on this day. And for those who have rejected, I would just simply ask you this. Would you consider today that there is no other way to be saved? You say, well, that is simply your words. No, friend, that is Jesus' words. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You say, well, that's just one of many ways, and Jesus is just alluding that there are other opportunities. No, and then he goes on to say that no man cometh unto the Father but by me. I would ask you today, do you believe the words of Christ? I wonder, have you connected the dots? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. As I said, I love a good story. I truly do. If you have a story you want to tell me, I will probably make time to hear it, because I'm a sucker for a story, as I said. Do you understand today there is no greater story and no story that is more impactful than the story of Jesus? And I pray pray today that we would connect the dots, not just in the scriptures, but that we would connect the dots in every area of our lives so that when we lay our heads on our pillows at night, regardless of what comes or doesn't come, regardless of if we know what's going to happen tomorrow or if we don't know, that we would simply say with the psalmist and with Christ, but this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes.